0: Oh, and welcome to ride pure the royal enfield podcast a podcast about royal enfield motorcycles the people who create and build them you the people that ride them the things you do to them and the places you explore on them i'm gordon may royal enfield's historian author and overland motorcycle traveler and i'll be hosting this bullet 90th episode In this series, we'll be celebrating the longest-running motorcycle model in continuous production, the legendary Royal Enfield Bullet. Unveiled 90 years ago in 1932, the Bullet has stood the test of time as a sports bike, a trials bike, a commuter, a vehicle for exploration, the basis of tens of thousands of custom builds, and an ally of the armed forces. In India, it has been king of the road since 1955 and unquestionably laid solid foundations for Royal Enfield as we know it and love it today. In recognition of its unprecedented endurance and global appeal, we're going to be talking to people from four specific groups for whom the bullet means everything. They are explorers, restorers and mechanics, customisers and members of the Royal Enfield riding community. Next up is another overland motorcycle traveller Subash Sharma in 1971 Subash and three friends set off on a 67,000 mile journey on two 1960s 350 bullets in the process becoming the first Indians to ride around the world Subash the only surviving member of the team will be sharing his memories from that extraordinary journey with us today Subhash, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, You and your friends, you were the first Indians to ride motorcycles around the world. Uh, And bullets, they were. What made you choose a bullet in the first place?
1: Well, uh, uh, in 1970s, uh, or, you know, 60s, because we chose our motorcycle, it was still 60s. Uh, India had only three options uh, with the motorcycles they produced in India, and they were not importing any. If they were, probably some rich people were buying it, but uh, because import duty was in those days about 400%, you know, if you bought Mm -hmm. it from somewhere. Uh, And uh, Royal Enfield was the biggest motorcycle. Uh, The smallest one was uh, what we call Rajdood, which was a WFM machine from Poland. And then the other one was uh, Java, which was a Czech Republic machine, which was 250cc. Both were two stroke. And uh, the Royal Enfield bullet, it was four stroke and the heaviest machine. Uh, So uh, uh, choice was very easy, you know, for Mm -hmm. our kind of work. And uh, when with the, well, the whole team was formed. And when Moon Singh joined our team, he already had a bullet. Uh, his was uh, 1967. And it was just four years old, three years old then, you know, so. We, uh, then we just bought another one uh, from the military surplus, which was 1964 model. And military made it surplus, so we bought it at auction. That's another right. story, you know, uh, how we went to the auction and what happened and all that. But uh, that's how these two motorcycles were uh, selected, and uh, uh, worked very well for us.
0: Interestingly, those two machines, sixty-four and sixty-seven, they had British components on them, so they were that's sort right. of they they, they weren't uh, they were p- partially Indian componentry, partially British componentry, assembled at the Madras. Royal Enfield factory.
1: Yeah, uh, that 64 one, especially, you know, when we uh, brought them to Jamshedpur uh, and that motorcycle and uh, took it to uh, Manmohan Singh's uh, uncle's uh, workshop uh, where he uh, repaired car engines, you know, and uh, we opened it up to the airframe and we saw lots of parts made made in England on that, you know. Uh, Mm Also, bearings were made in England. And uh, uh, whereas the other motorcycle, 67, that had less parts from England, you know. But Mm -hmm. we removed uh, all the parts and uh, whatever was needed to be replaced, to be replaced, under the guidance of Manmohan Singh's uncle. And uh, uh, it took about three weeks, you know, to do the whole job, like new paint and all that.
0: And I guess that gave you some, uh, it prepared you in a way for the journey, having stripped them down and rebuilt them once. um, If things were to fail on the ride or need maintenance, you had that experience already, which I think is quite vital for an overland motorcycle expedition, isn't it?
1: Yeah, the Murmur Singh's uncle made it a condition that he will help us only if we do all the work by ourselves. So Manmohan Singh worked on his 1967 bullet, and I worked on uh, that uh, 64 bullet. Uh, so two other friends, you know, they were there too, and they were helping. In fact, uh, to tell you the the, the story that Sampuran Singh, he used to own a very old BSA from 1940s, you know, and uh, he used to work on it all the time, uh, Every day he had to do something to keep it going, you know. So I considered him to be a master mechanic on the motorcycles. Uh, So uh, he wanted to do the work on that 64, and I asked him that if he let me do the work so that I will learn uh, how to uh, figure out, you know, what goes where, Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so he agreed with that. So he was with me uh, there, you know, uh, and Ashok, the other kid, uh, the kid uh, he used to be with Manmohan Singh and uh, taking care of the motorcycles. cycles, you know? uh, yeah. I mean, when we were refurbishing it and uh, after reconditioning, uh, uh, they looked like brand new, you know, uh, white paint. Uh, we chose white paint because uh, it's the color of peace. And uh, they want to have a military color or something, you know. So, uh, and it was visible from uh, quite a ways. Uh, So, uh, just to uh, have extra precaution, you know, uh, that these motorcycles were not meant to harm anybody, you know.
0: Right. And did you, apart from, you know, refurbishing them uh, mechanically, did you make any modifications for the journey? Or did you put luggage racks on or
1: Yeah, uh, it? Only, the only thing Goldenway did was uh, added the luggage rack. And uh, mm-hmm. as uh, you may know, that uh, Tata Engineering and Locomotive Company was a big company and they had a, a fabrication department which employed more than 500 people, you know. And uh, uh, one of their supervisors came and they said they would like to contribute something to the motorcycle. Uh, So we said uh, we'll need some uh, luggage carriers. So they came, took the measurements and used alloy aluminum to make those. And uh, at the end of the trip, uh, those were the only shining. Shiny parts on the motorcycle, you're gonna rest everything. Like
0: this How did you actually prepare for the ride? Because, of course, today we're blessed with uh, easy access to information. It's just there, well, not even on our computers, but on our phones. Um, And that that wealth of knowledge from around the world is just there at our fingertips. But for you chaps back in the late 60s and through to 1970 preparing for your ride, um, it must have been so much more challenging.
1: Well, uh, Gordon, in those days, you know, there could have been more information available in cities like Delhi or Bombay. Uh, we live near Calcutta. Uh, so nothing was available in Jamshedpur. Uh, only map we could find somewhere was just of India. Uh, and that that too was uh, more like an atlas, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, I uh, went to... Uh, Calcutta, uh, and there, you know, uh, after inquiring uh, at the bookstores and all that, those places, somebody told me that there is a big uh, American Information Center here in Calcutta, which is run by the American Embassy, uh, Consulate. You know, Embassy was in Delhi, uh, so I went there and it was pretty huge building, uh, and especially air-conditioned in Calcutta, so you know that was a welcome thing, uh, and uh, I went there, and I saw uh, they had the maps. Uh, They had Michelin maps. They have other maps uh, of the roads in different parts of the world. So what I did, uh, I came back to Jamshedpur. And uh, next week, I went back there again with some tracing paper, uh, like long tracing paper, you know, several feet long, and uh, my uh, drafting pen, and. Whatever else uh, I needed, and they, you know, because they would not let me uh, take the maps uh, with me to Jamsheer. Uh, so uh, I made uh, the tracings. Took me took me whole day, and then I brought it back. And then in our company, uh, we made blueprints out of it. So I, I still have those blueprints uh, with me, just for nostalgia. And so uh, the blueprints went around with,
0: the world with you
1: yeah that, that's how i came yeah. up with the uh, road map you know in general that how we're going to go but uh the facts are that uh, our plans were changed several times and many many detours and uh the roads which were shown on the uh, maps uh they were just like a uh, little trails you know uh and we Every time it rained, they changed. The, the trade went wrong. So uh, I'm talking more, mostly about Africa and a uh, uh, certain part of uh, eastern part of uh, Turkey. Uh, uh, that was difficult. Otherwise, mm-hmm. Iran had you know blacktop roads, and uh, other countries like Syria and Jordan and uh, Lebanon. They all had proper roads. But once you start in Egypt. Only roads which were blacked up at that time were roads following the Nile, all the cities which were and the banks of the Nile. But if you wanted to wear off a little bit, you know, like 50 miles this way or that way, uh, there were hardly any roads. But then once you are in Sudan, uh, that, the roads which are shown on the map, uh, it was just sand tracks. There was nothing. So that's why. Uh, those maps were helpful in talking to people in India when they were asking me questions and, you know, uh, like uh, submitting to the government, but they didn't help us much in the, the trip.
0: When you're but, actually on the ride. Um, uh,
1: so in Lebanon, uh, or even before that, you know, we found the regular maps, uh, road maps of, like, uh, for Africa, for Middle East, and then we started to use those maps. I still have those old maps, though, which we used at that time. Right. They're pretty wore out, but, you know, they're still there.
0: Yeah, so many memories tied up in them, though, I'm sure. Um, Before we dive into some of your experiences, can you just give us a quick recap? How many countries did you ride through and what was the total distance covered?
1: Total distance was 108,000 kilometres. Even though speedometer cable uh, broke a few times, but we uh, try to replace it as soon as possible. Uh, So uh, I would say 108,000 miles, it could have been 5,000 miles this way or that way, you know. Uh, 108,000 kilometer, I mean.
0: Which is 67,000 miles. Yeah, Yeah.
1: close to that, you know. Uh, And the country-wise, you know, uh, I always stuck with the number 62. But over the years, you know, things have changed. For example, you know, Sudan became, South Sudan and North Sudan, and uh, Yugoslavia became six countries, and the Czech Republic and uh, Czechoslovakia, two countries. Uh, So, uh, uh, you know, if you try to uh, look at it that way, it's... uh, uh, it's different numbers, but, you know. Uh, if you
0: made the journey today, you'd come up with a different number. Basically, a larger number.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, the only, um, one country, you know, we joined together was East and West Germany. So uh, yes. I considered it two countries at that time, but, you know, now it's one country. So that's minus one. But otherwise, uh, all other countries, you know, they divided into so many little countries. And,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, like so, uh, um, Ethiopia is Eritrea and Ethiopia now, you know. It, it mm-hmm. used to explain all Ethiopia.
0: Right. So, um, some of those highlights I mean, the first thing that jumps into mind, uh, knowing a little bit about your story, is that you um, struggled to get out of India in the first place. Can you tell us about that? Because that's a common yes, problem that uh, Indian riders have today. Uh,
1: Yes, uh, Gordon. Uh, the problem was, you know, it's like uh, uh, somewhere is published that, you know, uh, we had this idea or a cup of tea and, uh, uh, you know, did a little bit of research that, yeah, it can be done. But after that, you know, when the paperwork started, uh, first thing was to get a passport. And the first roadblock was thrown at us. Uh, there, there is a reason uh, on the form, you know. What is the reason why you want to uh, go? And in those days, you know, you could buy a airline ticket, return airline ticket, or if you have an uncle living in England, you know, you could go there very easily. There was no problem. But ours was, you know, we we're going to go overland, and uh, th- th- we weren't even sure that we'll be able to go through Pakistan. But we planned that, you know, so we told government and. Uh, so they wanted to know uh, that uh, we, we are really serious, we're going to do it, because there was no return tickets, you know. Uh, and uh, some of the officials told us that uh, if something happens to you and your motorcycles then we'll have to repatriate you. Uh, it will cost the government lots of money, you know. So they wanted to make sure that uh, you all are uh, able and uh, uh, you can do this and uh, you have enough money here to bring you back, uh, so uh, uh, no, no, it was never done before. So no, there was no department of the government which could tell us, you know, uh, how we could get that permission from the government uh, to allow us to leave the country, get a passport in the first place. Uh, so I talked to many people, you know, in our city, starting with, you know, high police officials and the government officials there and all that, and they said, you will not get answer for this here, but you will have to go to Delhi, the, the capital city. So it was two nights journey in those days. So I went there, and uh, there, you know, I checked with a couple of, uh, like, for the Ministry of Transportation, and, you know, they said, no, they haven't no idea about what you're talking Why don't you go to Ministry of Education? So went to them, and uh, there they told us, yes, uh, we have a youth services department and they can look at it. So I received a letter after a couple of weeks, you know, that They, uh, if this, uh, our state, you know, Bihar state where the Jamshedpur was, uh, if the sports council of that state uh, sponsors us and say, yeah, uh, w- we could be allowed to go. Only then, you know, they will look at the application. Uh, so uh, here, Napatna was about overnight journey from Jamshedpur. So I went there. I used to have a friend who lived there. Uh, he and I we went to college together. So he uh, knew city well. So we found the place. Yeah, you know, the sports council of Bihar. Their offices. and uh, they talked to us and they said, "Well, uh, we don't know you uh, much, but here is a gentleman in city. Uh, he went to 1936 or around that time, you know, Olympics, and he was the official for the Olympics, and he is very well respected uh, person in sports circles. So why did not you go and talk to him?" So it took us two days to locate him because they gave us just a. a Area of the city where he could be living, you know. He was in his late 70s or early 80s, you know. Uh, So we found him, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Huck, and uh, he listened to me very carefully, you know, for uh, almost one hour. And then he said, Yes, uh, I think uh, you're worthy of my sponsor. So He wrote us a letter, and next day we gave it to the Bihar State Spokes Council, and and then, you know, we waited for, uh, from the Ministry of Education to hear, and it took them a while, but then they called into our company and talked to the director of uh, our division that uh, they have given permission, Uh, but they were still waiting for the because they had to uh, send a copy to Ministry of, of Finance and Ministry of Foreign Affairs, that, that how our uh, trip could be uh, affecting those ministries. So they also uh, gave the permission. So finally, uh, once we got that, then we got the passport very easily. and.
0: You can, it's hard to believe that it was so difficult to get a passport. <laughs> it's quite incredible, really, isn't for, for it? For us, you
1: know, it was not for the general public, you know. If you have a return ticket, uh, airline return ticket, mm. uh, you could go anywhere you wanted, you know. Uh, mm. But in our case, it was that, that's why, you know, the, the Ministry of Education and the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they followed our uh, trip uh, with interest. And uh, they Mm -hmm. were the one, you know, like, uh, for example, before we uh, reached Algeria city, Algeria, uh, after crossing the Sahara Desert, uh, it was the government who decided, you know, that, yeah, we were the first Indians to cross Sahara Desert. And our ambassador was uh, in Algeria city, was already aware of it. And they gave us a great welcome there, you know. In fact, Mm -hmm. we stayed in the embassy complex there. Uh, oh, very nice. <laughs> we were, uh, not only that, even in Washington, D.C. here, when we came to Washington, D.C., uh, we stayed at the embassy. Right. Uh, yeah, the, the, we were the guest of the embassy, you know. So uh, uh, th- that's how it was. And uh, sure, you know, then uh, when we were about to leave and – Pakistani people uh, hijacked an Indian plane, you know, an Indian airline plane, and took it to Pakistan. So borders were closed, so there was no way we could go through Pakistan. So then we had to run to Bombay, and there, you know, our company Tata's uh, industries, uh, they had an export office, uh, like they when I say office, like had about thousand people working there, you know. Uh, so they made an aim for us to go on a, a cargo ship up to Kuwait. Yeah.
2: Mm.
0: And this is one of the things I think that is a great example of the kind of flexibility you need for overland travel, you know, and, and resilience to get on and do it no matter what. So you've decided to go. Suddenly the border to Pakistan, the next country's closed. You have to find an alternative and you just right. work around it. And And that is... Um, one of the the skills you have to have to make an overland journey, I think, that flexibility and determination.
1: Yeah, determine, determination is a must. But flexibility—without flexibility, you know—you can you cannot get much further than you know uh, a few thousand miles. You know, uh, if you're not flexible. Uh, and things will not work out i can tell yeah. you that mm-hmm.
0: so maybe you can share some of the highlights of the uh the, the journey with us um obviously um much as we'd love to hear stories from each of the 62 countries um with the limits of our podcast we can't do that but maybe you can pick out some of the highlights uh for us
1: well good uh Highlights are both ways, like very pleasant and heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here I'll tell you, I'll start with India. So we left India and uh, went to Delhi. And uh, when we found out that we cannot go through Pakistan, we diverted to Bombay. And when we were just about, you know, 400 miles from Bombay, we had our first accident. Uh, Nobody knows about this. Our company never knew about it. My relatives, my parents never knew about it. So you are the first one to know. Uh,
0: (laughs) 50 years later.
1: (laughs) uh, Because if we would have told our parents uh, that uh, we had an accident here, oh, they would have wanted to finish it right there, you know. Uh, It was like uh, we were going through a a little village and uh, we were going at 10 miles an hour or something, you know, and uh, this young kid, you know, 12, 14-year-old kid was riding a tractor, and he suddenly turned the steering uh, towards us and the wheel. uh, My motorcycle's front wheel hit his uh, front wheel, and Singh and I were both thrown off the motorcycle, you know, and the... uh, The crankcase covers, you know, they broke and a few other items. Uh, So uh, we thought that uh, it'll be tough uh, because there was hardly any mechanic there. It was a small village, you know. Uh, So uh, later we found out that uh, the kid uh, was the son of the head of the village. So this guy, he was very uh, sorry and uh, What he did, he summoned uh, two mechanics from a bigger town, which was about 40 miles away. And uh, they came and looked at the uh, motorcycle, and then they decided what parts they need. And it happened around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. By 8 o'clock, we were back on the road. They went back to the other town and uh, brought the parts and fixed it, and everything was fine. So, uh, and uh, we had just few scratches here and there, you know. So Mm. that was the first accident. And in fact, in my case, that was a major accident. I I never had any other accident like that uh, throughout the trip. Right. uh, So, uh, then, you know, uh, once we we were in Kuwait and then on to Iraq, uh, going through Basra, It's a small, uh, not small, very good size town in the south. And then on to Iran. Now, these were very small distances. Like Kuwait is a very small place, you know, and we crossed it easily. And the southern part of Iraq we crossed, like, within two days. But once in uh, Iran, distances were long. So we had to figure out uh, uh, where to stay in the nighttime. So the first thing was we came across this small petrol station uh, in the evening and we asked the guy could we stay there for the night and I said yeah uh, we'll be closing in a little bit and you can just use the front and there were no rains and not cold nice weather so that's how we started and uh we got this clue that hey you can use you know the, these kind of establishment on the roadside a, a little a coffee shop a little hole, hole in the wall places you know and
0: uh, mm-hmm.
1: so and did you uh, have
0: did you have tents with you or were you just no, sleeping out we under have the have stars? Tents,
1: we didn't have any mm. pillows uh i'll tell you that uh mostly i used my shoes for my pillow uh, throughout the journey. So, mm-hmm. but we had sleeping bags though. So these sleeping bags we acquired while we were in Delhi, uh, these were military surplus, uh, you know, which they discard So we picked those up, four of those, and that we used throughout our ship. Right. And uh, then, you know, after Iran, uh, Turkey was. Place I had very little idea about. Uh, uh, we read about Turkey and all that and the uh, Sultan from 300 years ago, but uh, how Turkey was, Eastern Turkey especially was, we didn't know. And it was all dirt, tracks. Uh, but uh, my friend, Sampuran Singh, he got sick there in Eastern Turkey. Uh, he developed abscess on his thigh, upper thigh. So uh, we took him to a a little hospital there in a small town. Now, the problem was that I didn't know Turkish. I knew just little German. And uh, we met this guy, he used to work in Germany in the automobile industry. So he spoke some German and some Turkish. And the doctor spoke only French because he was a French doctor. (laughs) So here I was trying to explain uh, to uh, this guy, a gentleman who was trying to help us, uh, in German, which was very broken German, and then he uh, took his best shot at French, and that's how we did it. But it didn't work. Uh, The doctor didn't understand what was going on. He just gave some antibiotics, you know. And the, the... thing had to endure through Turkey and then to uh, Syria and then to Jordan and then to Lebanon. Then, when we were there in Lebanon in Beirut, there was this hospital called uh, American Hospital and Univers- University Hospital. Uh, so they did the surgery, and but for almost you know ten days, he he was in bad shape. Uh, he used mm-hmm. to just we used to put him on the motorcycle and he'll sit there and very painful stuff mm-hmm. so but you know it's not that we stop there and you know in a big city and try to get his thigh taken care of didn't have as much time and also we didn't have any idea that which hospital to go to you know yes. uh, sure. So uh, in Beirut, you know, uh, they did surgery and all that and uh, he became well, but they never asked us for any money. Uh, And then uh, from there, you know, uh, first hurdle, so so to speak of, you know, uh, which could have really changed the trajectory of our uh, trip. Was in Sudan. Uh, in, Sudan uh, in Sudan, what happened? That uh, by looking at the roads, you know, on the uh, map, yeah, we could get into Eritrea uh, area. Uh, but when we get close to uh, the border, like within fifty miles or so, in a small town, uh, Kasala. We were told that no, we cannot go, we cannot cross the border on motorcycles due to uh, what they call Shifta problem. Shifta is that was the group which wanted to break away from Ethiopia. Uh, So, uh, after looking at all the options, the only option we could find which was reasonable was to put the motorcycles on a small plane. And there was an airplane a service every week uh, from there to Asmara, which was in it, in it area. So it was only 300 kilometers distance, you know, but we, we couldn't ride through there. So the airline company wanted us to dismantle motorcycle, each motorcycle, into three pieces. And then... Uh, wrapped them in gunny bags. And uh, so it became six pieces now, you know. So yes, yes. we did that. And uh, when the plane came, we realized why why they wanted that. Because it was such a small plane. It was 12 or 15 people, you know. And uh, there was a small cargo hole. So somehow we shoved those pieces in there. And then uh, when we uh, got to... airport, you know, uh, Asmara Airport. It used to be an American uh, Air Force area, you know, uh, airport, but uh, we got there and they did one good thing. They dropped these uh, three pieces right next to the uh, runway. So we assembled the motorcycle right there. Took a couple of hours, and uh, then we rode out of the airport.
0: So, so you assembled them at the si- side of the runway.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then you know, uh, one of the uh, our friends, you know, he went uh, brought a couple of gallon, uh, one gallon of petrol so that uh, we could start the motorcycle. Uh, mm. and after that, you know, uh when we got to uh, real Africa, so to speak of, uh, with it was raining almost every day and the mud everywhere, you know, uh, th- that was a different experience altogether. Uh, which can break anybody's will, you know. Uh, it's like uh, mud started now. How far it will go? Sometime it was ten miles. Sometime it was fifty miles. You know, you don't know, and. Uh, Tracks were so narrow that uh, trucks, you know, could go uh, through it, but many trucks uh, get stuck on the way. So when a truck was stuck, you can't find a way to go around it, until, unless you want to go into the bush, and uh, that was pretty dangerous. You know, you didn't know what is there.
2: Hmm.
1: So, uh, for example, you know, when we got to Congo. It was raining every day. We were there for seven or eight days, and every day it rained. So our sleeping bags were wet all the time, and our clothes were wet all the time. But temperature was like you know ninety degrees, so it was okay. Uh, but uh, let let me gather my thoughts. You know, it's pretty old thoughts. Uh, First encounter we had with the pygmies there, in the central part of Congo, and not knowing anything about those tribal people or different kind of people, we had no idea. And at one place, you know, we saw a group of them. So uh, Manmohan Singh wanted to take picture. So when he got off the motorcycle, these this group start to walk towards us. And they had, you know, these little uh, bows and arrows and uh, some of these uh, javelins, you know. We didn't know, we had no idea why they were coming towards us. So we just got on the motorcycle and tried to run away as fast as possible. (laughs) (laughs) So when we got to the big, this bigger town, Kisangani, there, you know, uh, we talked to the people and uh, they said, well, they were as much afraid of you as you were afraid of them. I said, why? I said, because you know, when French were there and Belgians were there, and whenever there was any little revolt, they used to come on motorcycles to uh, quell the revolt. So these people were very afraid of motorcycle riders. Okay. So that's why, you know, they were coming towards you just so that they threatened you and you ran away, and you did the right thing, you ran away. Uh, Mm. So uh, so that's how, you know, we were introduced to different tribes and uh, what happened in those countries and what is the effect of that, uh, uh, what the colonials did there. why the societies were that way. So, uh, and then, you know, after that, the, um, the big thing after that we encounter was in uh, Sahara Desert, you know, when we got to Niger. Uh, even though, uh, through Mali, you know, we had some uh, sand tracks and all, but a real desert was, uh, For us, you know, it was in uh, Niger or Niger, some people call it Niger, you know. Uh, There was a town called Agadiz. Uh, That's where uh, they had a check post, like an immigration post, even though you enter the country, you know, hundred miles before, but that's where they had immigration and uh, a custom post. And it was just a... uh, mud building, you know, small place. And uh, they told us that uh, they will not let let us go uh, on our own. Because a week before, uh, one of their uh, small uh, jeep with few soldiers went into the desert. And they never came back. So that was the military people. So they wanted us to follow a truck, a goods truck, you know, which was going to the other town and uh, we should follow them. So we waited three days and finally we found a truck and we traveled. But that truck driver, you know, he had to go to some other small towns off the uh, main track uh, to deliver goods, you know. So we couldn't follow him continuously uh, going this way or that way. So we, we kept on going straight. So we overcame that problem. But uh, if you talk about being felt threatened, there was this small oasis where there was water and there were some trees around it. So we stopped there and we thought, you know, we could replenish our water supply there. It was late afternoon and there was one single soldier. from Niger, he he had his gun ready with a bayonet in front of it and when he saw walking us uh, towards him, man, he he lunged towards us. So we kind of raised our hands and just stood there and then whatever little French I knew, I used it and told him that we just need uh, water. So once he felt comfortable, he let us uh, take the water from there, and then we asked, "Can we spend the night here?" And he said, "No." Uh, so we left from there. So these were the kind of problems we never anticipated. You know,
2: mm-hmm. that mm-hmm.
1: lack of communication. Uh, I always thought I was pretty good communicator, but you know, uh, sometimes everything fails. Uh, Especially, you know, when other person doesn't understand your intentions. Hmm. And so the, did you
0: just sleep? Did you just sleep out in the in, in the desert in the yes, Sahara?
1: Uh, many hmm. times, it took us almost, you know, uh, over twenty eight days to cross the full Sahara desert, Central Sahara. That is the longest distance, you know, cross hmm. Sahara. And the, uh, other than you know four places. Where there were little towns, and there was one oasis with only twenty people, we spend the night there. Otherwise, every night it was under the stars. Um,
0: I understand in Africa, you uh, one of the bikes broke down, and you had to tow it for quite some distance. Yes, as well. uh,
1: it, it happened in Congo. Uh, their second largest city, Kisangani, was about forty miles. And when it happened, uh, one of the motorcycles just Stopped, engine stopped. And you know, with all our uh, deep knowledge of the motorcycles, uh, I'm saying it tongue in cheek, uh, we uh, ascertained that uh, uh, motorcycle will not start. So, uh, you know, uh, we were four people, two motorcycles, Royal Enfields, Bullets. One was not working. So one working engine, single cylinder, four people on two motorcycles with all our luggage, and that motorcycle pulled us for 40 miles to Kisangani. Now, that's a great tribute to that motorcycle. That was the 1964 one, uh, which did that. So if people may think, you know, that all-in-field machinery is not reliable enough, whatever, uh, I can attest to that, you know, the, that motorcycle hadn't. No problem at all in 108,000 kilometers. Engine yeah. problem. I'm talking about yeah, We had you know brakes and those kind of problems, but that's wear and tear. Uh, so uh, yes. uh, when we uh, got to uh, Kissingani, uh, there were a few Indians, uh, truck drivers living there. You know? So they knew a mechanic, uh, auto mechanic, and we went to his shop, and then he spread the word, and three other mechanics came from different shops, you know. And they all put their head together, what to do with it. They never saw a Rolling Field motorcycle, or they never repaired a motorcycle before. So when they opened the head, they found that uh, one of the valves had seized. So uh, they knew exactly what to do after that, but it was the problem that they, they couldn't get that uh, valve, you know to fit the head. So uh, one of the mechanics suggested that there was a, he had some old valves sitting there. One was from old Jeep. uh, And uh, they modified it in in their machine shop. Uh, Now, uh, results were not exactly, you know, what you will get a valve from the factory. Like uh, the honing and lapping was not as perfect. And the grinding of the shaft was not, as perfect but it it was good enough that it it started to work so uh, so they fixed it uh like it looked like you know the whole town was involved in it all the mechanics available there they put in their two cent worth and they made it work you know
0: and that valve actually ca- carried you across the Sahara Desert. I mean, were you not nervous um, with, you know, the the, the the risks involved in crossing the Sahara uh, unsupported um, when, you know, you've got a, a, a valve that's been uh, made up out of an old Jeep valve? <laughs> were you not nervous that the same might happen again? And, uh, you know, you've got all the risks of uh, – uh, lack of water and uh, extreme temperature and uh, and and just the, the huge distances between habitations. Did, did that not concern you?
1: Uh, you go, there were many, many concerns other than that concern. That was a big concern. But there were many concerns like Sahara Desert. We spread our sleeping bags and there are snakes and there are scorpions. uh mm. They're bandits. Uh, there were mm. all sorts of concerns. Uh, mm. But uh, that's what adventure is all about, you know.
0: That yeah, that's you, the you word know, that came, that's the, exactly the word that came into my head. Actually, <coughs> is, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a real adventure uh, setting know, set up to, to do that. We set out to
1: do something. We set out yeah. to do something and uh, uh, there was lots of factors involved in it. Many were very dangerous factors. But we still decided to leave India. So, uh, where, you know, our friends thought that we'll, we'll never come back because we'll die on the way. Uh, they were so sure of that. And uh, we were very well aware of these kind of problems. Uh, Sahara Desert, you know, like if we would have lost one more cycle, uh, we, we even contemplated that we will try to and ride for, four on one, we'll just discard all our luggage and everything. And we'll try to be four on one and see how far we can go. Or maybe two will walk uh, alongside the motorcycle. And uh, so we had all those uh, thoughts of idea, you know, but uh, those ideas were not very practical. Mm. Uh, so knowing very well uh, that the bale was uh, kind of a uh, retrofitted well. But then when we were in England, you know, and we could uh, we could have had a, a bell for Roland Field, we didn't do anything about it. We thought, you know, it's working fine, so why to bother you? Know?
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And uh, whenever we started motorcycle every day, we listened to the sound, sounded fine, and uh, it's, uh, the pulling power was fine, you know, so, uh, no change, and sure, you know it uh, broke down again and <clears throat> broke down again in uh, near Chicago. But at that time it did a lot more damage uh, because the valve broke itself. You know, it j- just didn't seize, but it broke, and uh, it damaged the piston and the uh, the valve of the. Uh, I mean, sorry. The walls of the bore, uh, but then again, you know, uh, people in Chicago, you know, this mechanic shop is a BSA shop, and they used a the old BSA valve and fixed it. Hmm. And, uh,
0: it's interesting, I mean, we're going off off uh, track a little bit here about, you know, your, your route and where you've been, but um, it, it's an interesting point that you've brought up because eh, on this kind of journey, if you're in the right, you've got the right mindset and the right belief in yourself and what you're doing, um, things always work out, don't they? You're right, and uh, Gordon, uh,
1: I'm an old man now, uh, but... Uh and I'm still the same What I was in my younger days, Uh, I worried very little about things, uh, because things can go wrong anywhere. You can have a catastrophe on a motorcycle anywhere, Hmm. uh, like injuries. Uh, So going through Sahara Desert, there were many issues, you know, which we could have thought and said, hey, let's not do it. Or uh, there was many reasons that let's go ahead and do it, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, we we never stopped somewhere or, you know, uh, got afraid and, okay, let's change our route because things are bad on this side or that side, you know. Uh, in fact, you know, I enjoyed my ride through Sahara Desert so much. Uh, uh, I tell this thing to, you know, sometimes the people and they laugh, that out of four of us, uh, three of them, they lost weight after crossing the Sahara Desert for a month because there was not much to eat. Uh, just a few sardines or uh, salmon and... Uh, Tomato sauce or something, and you know some dried up bread. And those, but I was the only one who gained weight, you know, because I enjoyed it so much.
2: <laughs>
1: so uh, I enjoyed every minute of that, you know. Like in the evening, lay on the sand and you know look at the stars. We never saw so many stars in our lives, you know. And mm-hmm. temperature get down to you know. Fifty-five degrees or so by nine o'clock. Uh, so uh, you could hear your own uh, heartbeat because you know that for a couple of hundred miles, either way, all around you, there's nothing. There are no humans. So, uh, so it can strike fear into people's heart, or it can give you a reason to smile that you got up to there, you know. Yes. Yeah, you wanted to do it, so enjoy it.
0: Yeah, that's a great attitude, great attitude. Uh, So then you uh, wound your way around Europe uh, and ended up in uh, England, is that right?
1: Yeah, in Europe, you know, uh, things were pretty good, but we got there at the wrong time. We were in Spain in early October, you know, so that was not bad. But by the time we got to France and the then to northern part of Italy and uh, to uh, Serbia and all, which is, uh, like, it used to be old Yugoslavia, you know. Uh, It started to snow then, you know. Hmm. And we encountered some snow in Turkey, but it was for a short period, like five, six days. But here, you know, once we started going towards Eastern uh, Europe, uh starting with germany you know it's, uh, there was ice on the roads uh especially the uh, side roads the big freeways uh, their motorways were fine it's the just the, uh, the small roads and we always prefer to take small roads because we were not going over 45 miles an hour uh and they were all full of ice you know so you got to be pretty careful and uh, uh In Germany, you know, uh, in a small town uh, between Stuttgart and Munich, uh, one evening, you know, we got there and we thought there was some youth hostel that that was open. But when we got there, they said, no, we are closed for the winter, you know. So uh, it was already 7 o'clock and we had no idea where to go. And then one of the motorcycles stopped working. It will just sputter, you know. So in the dark, uh, in the cold, uh, we didn't do anything. So we parked the motorcycle and we looked for this place. This was the building under construction, you know, some small building they were constructing. And uh, there was snow on the ground, so there was snow everywhere. Under the, But there was a set of st- stairs going up, you know, so under those, uh, that there was no snow. So we both... Uh, Rulers asleep in my eyes, there, you know, and the are sleep. And uh, there we encountered, you know, uh, minus eight degrees that night, uh, sleeping. And so we might have fallen asleep early in the morning. When the workers came around eight o'clock, they thought we were dead. So uh, they used their, you know, shoes, uh, toes, you know, to uh, wake us up. And we woke up, and to their surprise, otherwise they thought we were dead. Right. So uh, then there was a car mechanic there, you know, uh, uh, who looked at the motorcycle, and he said, uh, oh, some water has gotten into your wire and the coil, you know. So he used some spray and all that, you know, to clean it up, and motorcycle was working fine. So it was not a big problem. But uh, in the nighttime, you know, in the cold we couldn't figure it out sure uh, but uh i think that was the coldest night we ever slept outside you know hmm. and then uh, and, uh, sure go
0: ahead So then then you got to the uk and uh i believe um you yeah. struggle to get parts, and, uh, I mean, that must have been quite a shock because you would still think in the early 1970s there'd be lots of Royal Enfield parts in the UK, but you struggle to get them. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah. Uh, go, I will go a little bit back. When I was in India and I went to Madras, uh, the Royal Enfield uh, showroom, you know, they had a company and then they had a big big showroom. And there they had this uh, Mr. Vora, uh, gentleman's name, and uh, he was the head of uh, uh, public relations. And I told him about our trip and all that. And uh, he said, oh, many people come, nobody ever does it, so why don't you come back after you have finished it, you know? So I asked him, okay, is it possible that if we need these parts somewhere, uh, you can get us the parts? And he said, well, if you make it to England, uh, there is Royal Enfield Company, and you can have all the parts you want. And that he was telling me in the later part of 1970, and he knew very well that in 1967, uh, the company almost closed and, you know, sent most of the things to India. Hmm. So he lied to me. So when we got to England, uh, before getting to England, you know, we exhausted all our parts which we were carrying with us. And uh, uh, one little uh, story, you know, that uh, when we were in France and going to Calais, uh, it was about 170 miles or 150 miles, you know, to the border. Uh, My accelerator cable broke. So uh, I took a little piece of wood and, you know, wrapped the broken end of the wire on it, and I was using one hand, my right hand, you know, to just pull pull the accelerator wire, one hand uh, for the clutch and uh, controlling the handlebar, you know. and I did that for about 150, 70 miles, whatever it was, and uh, through London, uh, going all the way uh, where the first motorcycle uh, spare part shop we found, you know, so uh th- 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 that was an adventure in itself, you know. And then, uh, <laughs>
0: I could Im- I can imagine because you need that uh, right hand for for your front brake as well.
1: <laughs> uh, your yeah, front brake, I didn't even care at that time. But uh, uh, at the border, you know, uh, entering uh, Dover, uh, these immigration officers, you know, uh, they looked at everybody with suspicion that this person is coming here to stay permanently and all that, you know, uh, even though we're part of Commonwealth coming from India. uh, But they wanted to know so much about the motorcycles. And when we said we're coming through Africa, they they started talking about Africa and uh, why we didn't go to South Africa. And I said, well, India doesn't have political relations with uh, South Africa. And then, you know, this one gentleman who used to own a, a, a roll field English-made field and he wanted to compare it how the Indian-made motorcycles that are standing up, up to, you know, what he had. So we spent almost four hours there, you know, talking to these <laughs> people. <laughs> they were curious. And uh, but otherwise, you know, entering the country was no problem. But... Uh, they, they had their curiosity.
0: Mm. But com- coming back to the spare parts situation, um, y- you struggle to find uh, parts for your bikes in England, I understand.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, this uh, out motorcycle parts shop we went to, they said they don't have anything. But they gave me the address of another motorcycle sh- spare part shop in London and the. Uh, we went there, and this guy had, you know, some old parts left. And uh, he said, yeah, these clutch wires and uh, this uh, accelerator cable, you know, he can give us. And uh, He gave us quite a few parts. He didn't charge us any money for it. Very nice gentleman. And, uh, but still, you know, like we needed new sprocket uh, for the motorcycles, both of them. Chains were available, so chain was not a problem. And then the brake linings we needed, you know. Uh, so and also you know uh, we wanted to open up the, the cylinder head and see you know if there's lots of carbon there or something. So uh, uh, So he gave us whatever parts he had, but then uh, nephew of mine who was only about 12, 12 year, 14 year old at that time coming to visit his parents in England, And uh, a friend of ours, he arranged the parts we needed and gave to him a suitcase full of parts, you know, for for this little kid. And he brought it there to us. So we had to wait almost, you know, two weeks for all that. Mm -hmm. And then then,
0: uh, how did you get yourself from from England then to North America?
1: Well, uh, uh, we went to... uh, like this shipping company in London, you know, I, I checked uh, the two, three companies, and this company uh, had the minimum rate for the freight, you know. Uh, but he said, uh, our motorcycle will be in the open area. I didn't understand what he meant, you know. So, uh, the greatest thing was, you know, coming from India, when you talk to somebody on the phone, and they say, oh, yeah, when you come here at 4 o'clock, your things will be taken care of. So uh, uh, I took it with a grain of salt, so I went there at 2 o'clock instead of 4 o'clock. You know? <laughs> uh, and the gentleman said, you came earlier, but I have all, all the paper already. And uh, so, you know, uh, we handed over the motorcycle to them. And... Uh, when we received them and it took them uh, close to fifteen days to get to New York and we took a flight uh, three days before that 15 day period was going to end and when we saw those motorcycle at the port man they were full of rust then I realized what he meant by the, the, he's going to send it in open area you know all the salt water. Uh, so that's how we got to New York.
0: That would just about break your heart, seeing your precious motorcycles in that condition, wouldn't it?
1: Uh, it didn't make any difference to me at all. No? It was just just uh, the motorcycle. We just wanted to take this machine to as far as possible. And when we were in New York, we still had plans to go to South America through Mexico, and uh, then take a a ship, you know, from, uh, or at least put the motorcycles on on a ship to uh, Japan. But uh, in the U.S., we we went through 27 states. We were there for almost two and a half months, almost three months, and uh, we realized that motorcycles uh, they have given us very good service. Now it's about time, you know, either we recondition them, over them, or we go back home. Mm. Because we were having you know, small breakdowns, you know, more often. And uh, so by the time we got to Los Angeles, we decided that we will uh, go back now.
0: Right. And by this time there were only two of you So uh, at some point uh, You lost two of your party I think, um, was that back in Europe Two
1: decided yeah, to, to, uh, to go home You know They started talking about Going back As soon as we entered Spain But you know uh, They couldn't take a flight Because we didn't have much money uh, mm. So uh they stayed uh, with the group until we got to the point from where, you know, we were going in a different direction, north, and they could they go east. Uh, so uh, I still remember very clearly that it was a rainy, a kind of drizzly morning, you know, very cold. It was uh, not too far from Milan, Italy. And uh, they decided to leave on that day. The reason was, you know, Sampuran saying he had four kids, he was married, and, uh, you know, it was a little bit too much for his family, I guess. And the yes. other one, Ashok Khe, uh who the, your uh, friend Parveen Sathe, he knew him very well and his family very well. Uh, he was physically a little weak a uh, very dear friend of mine but uh, during the uh, trip you know uh, probably he had most difficulty uh, going through the cold areas and uh, difficulties sitting on the motorcycle through rough areas and all that so he decided to go back you know he said he might have driven motorcycle maybe a thousand miles you know in the whole trip hmm. so he so he decided to go back uh, with Singh. So they left right. for these reasons. You know. and then so how, the- d-
0: how did you then get home from Los Angeles?
1: No, we went up to San Francisco. Right. And uh, San Francisco, uh, that's where we decided rather than going to Japan, we'll ship the motorcycle back to India and uh, we'll hitchhike back to India. But uh, the biggest expense was to ship motorcycles to India, you know, to Bombay from San Francisco. So we talked to uh, our counselor uh, office, the counselor himself, uh, and he said that if you want to raise some money in San Francisco, uh, you may not be able to do it. But there is a small town called Yuba City. It's... Hundred fifty miles or so from uh, San Francisco, he said, that "There's a big Indian community there, you know, and you go there and see, you know, if they can help you." So we went there, and uh, they took, like you know, in their Sikh temple, they took good care of us and all that. And uh, when I told I told them that uh, we'll need some money uh, to ship our motorcycle back to india the, so one gentleman said uh, i have some uh, work for you if you want to work so he had uh, these fields you know he had thousand acres more than thousand acres land at that time just to give you some idea that uh, that gentleman became the first billionaire in u.s indian billionaire in u.s okay So, uh, we went uh, next day. We went to his field, and there were a bunch of other people, you know. And the the deal was that we had to get, you know, weeds and grass out of, you know, his little plants. So we did that for eight hours. And the uh, I was the slowest guy, I guess. Uh, other people did well, so he was going to pay us a two dollar. For a row and a row was like half a mile long, you know. So I did eighteen rows. Manmohan Singh did twenty rows, and other people did forty rows. So he gave us some money, and he said next day, uh, come to his peach uh, orchard, you know. There is some work there. So we went there in the morning, and uh, I was in one side, and Manmohan Singh was far away from me on the other side, and we were just taking the grass out, and he came around eleven o'clock in his car with his uh, assistant. And he said, well, uh, why you are both so far apart from each other? He said, well, uh, if we are together, we'll be talking, and uh, hardly any work will be done, you know?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so he said, well, uh, let's go to have lunch. So the gentleman's name was Mr. Baines. Uh, and he took us to a nice restaurant, and you know, we had lunch. And uh, after the lunch, he asked me, "How much money do you need?" And I said, "Well, uh, I had those fingers, my fingertips, you know." I said, "Well, uh, we need seven hundred and twenty dollars, and we have about one hundred and ten dollars." So, uh, so he told us secretary or assistant, who he was, that given uh, give them the money. So he gave us $750. So I said, no, we don't need that money. He said, no, no when you'll be traveling back home, you may need the extra money. So mm-hmm. I asked him, sir, why you made us work in your fields for a day and a half if you were going to give us the money? He said, I just wanted to see that if you're willing to work or not. So uh, I learned lots of lessons during that trip. And this was one of the lessons, you know, stayed with me.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: I can talk about, you know, many of the lessons I learned from different people, simple people, ordinary people. But this was the one, you know, he just wanted to see our intentions. Yes. That if We wanted just free money or we were willing to work for it.
2: Mm.
1: So the, mm. those were the only day and a half we worked in the whole 18 months. We never worked otherwise.
0: What's an uh, interesting and, uh, and, and obviously generous man, yes.
1: Well, oh, yeah, there were many generous men, you know. There was another story in uh, Uganda, uh, in Kampala. Uh, there was also, you know, this quite, a, quite a big Indian community there. And uh, there was this industrialist, he had a very large plant uh, producing mm-hmm. plywood. So he asked us one day to come and have lunch with him at his company. So we went there and knowing, you know, that he's a big businessman, we may get some money from him. So at the end, you know, he uh, we came to his office and he gave us a wallet. Each one of us, four wallets. So, and his uh, company's name was imprinted on it. So we thought, okay, he is giving us wallets, you know. So we left. We came out, you know, just opened it. And there was uh, each wallet contained 500 shilling notes, you know, bank notes. In now that was so much money that we could not carry legally out of the country. That was enough for the next 5,000 miles. Hmm. Uh, so uh, we asked uh, this another gentleman who used to work for the government, and uh, he said, well, why don't you go to uh, this uh, Ministry of Finance and uh, Economics, and maybe they can help you. So we went there, And would you believe that the finance minister himself came down to see our motorcycles? He was so impressed, and he signed the paper, you know, and our money was, uh, that money was converted into dollars. Uh, So uh, that's how the generosity was, you know, from people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, So did you actually make it back to India before your motorcycles, or did they beat you there?
1: No, no, no. We made it. uh, They told us, you know, it will take at least 28, 27, 20 days, eight days before, you know, get there. But it took them almost a month and three days to get there. And uh, we started to hitchhike right out of San Francisco. And uh, it took us seven days to get to New York. Now that hitchhiking story itself is pretty interesting, but it has nothing to do with motorcycles. And then from uh, New York, we took a flight back to London and then a ferry to uh, Belgium. And then we uh, hitchhiked as far as uh, Munich. And then after that, you know, we realized that the trains were pretty cheap. Uh, so, and you can sleep in the nighttime, you know, in the train, mm-hmm. even though it's just a sitting seat, you know, but you can sleep. So we took, from Munich, you know, uh, we got to uh, Austria and from Austria to Bulgaria and from Sofia, we took a train to Istanbul And from Istanbul, we took a bus all the way to uh, Tehran in Iran. And then from Tehran, we took another bus all the way to Kabul. It was like several days, like three-day bus, you know. Uh, So once we got to Kabul, it cost only four, from there it was supposed to cost only $40 for the airline tickets to Amritsar, which is a city in Punjab in in the northern part of India, you know. So we got two tickets. Uh, so when we got back to India, we still had $10 left.
2: <laughs>
1: and $10 was enough you know, to get us from uh, Amritsar to Delhi. In Delhi, Manmohan Singh's parents lived there, you know, his brother lived there. So after that, we had no financial problems, so to speak of. And then sure. from there, the, we uh, took a train to Bombay and in Bombay, we had a great welcome by the, the Tata Industries. Uh, the, the chairman was, at that time, Mr. J.R.D. Tata. But the, the vice chairman was Mr. Mulgawker, who was then in charge of uh, the company we worked for, uh, Tata Engineering and Locomotive. So he asked us to come to his office. And you know, uh, we were treated very well there.
0: Hmm. Uh, and from I'm... Go ahead. No, no, please, you go ahead.
1: And from there, you know, uh, we went to, uh, like, western part of India, you know, uh, through Goa and uh, to Kerala, went back to Madras, to the company. And there, you know, the uh, Royal French Company, and the, they were very nice to us, the CEO at that time. He was very nice to us. He invited us for lunch. And then he offered us money or they will refurbish our motorcycles to the brand new condition. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And any service if we needed in Jamshedpur, at the dealership, it will be free. Uh, So we chose the second one. I told them to refurbish our motorcycle. But uh, during this uh, whole trip, I maintained a diary or a... I would say, you know, it was a log for the motorcycles. Each motorcycle I had, you know, a few pages that what kind of parts broke down, where where we had a major uh, incident, and uh, what the weather conditions were, and what the road conditions were, and all that. And we uh, carried some of the parts back, you know, to show it to them. And I gave it to uh, Royal Enfield Company. Uh, they're there, you know, and uh, what they did with it, I have no idea. Uh,
0: mm. What, what did it actually feel like being reunited with your bikes? Obviously, you'd had to say goodbye to them, then you had this what is it, a mammoth hitchhiking and railway journey to get back to India, and then your bikes were coming in the opposite direction by sea. What, what, what was it? What was that feeling like being reunited with them?
1: Uh, we were still in the frame of mind, Gordon, that uh, the trip is not finished yet. Hmm. So uh, when we saw the motorcycles, we're glad. But I'm sorry to say that Indian officials, custom officials, were so nasty to us that uh, they wouldn't let it come out of the port for three days. And uh, Hmm. the reason was given to us that maybe you guys, when you were in foreign countries, you put a new engine there now, how stupid people can be, you know, that it's a Royal Enfield, nobody, nowhere else people can find it, you know, and all that. Uh, but So we had the most difficulty getting our own Indian-built motorcycles back into India. Mm-hmm. After three days, they, they released it, Then, uh, but, you know, that's how the Indian red tape works, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. And and what happened to those bullets, those two bullets that you'd made this amazing journey with? So, well, you know, you know Ryan field I, offered to restore them. What yeah. happened next?
1: You know, I left India in the uh, early part of December and I came to England. So motorcycles were not uh, completed by then, you know. Uh, so one mm-hmm. morning received the motorcycles in later part middle part of uh, december and uh, sure he took his motorcycle but even though other two friends you know ashok kade and sampuran singh they put more money into buying that mo- second motorcycle from the auction but it was considered my motorcycle because you know uh, i was riding it or registration was in my name and all that you know so that's why i call it my motorcycle otherwise it was everybody's motorcycle so my younger brothers, who were very young at that time, 14 years, 16 years, you know, they didn't know the value of that motorcycle. And the, but in today's terms, I didn't know either. Uh, so they sold it. So when I went back to India in 76, uh, I tried to locate it. I couldn't locate it. And then my Singh's motorcycle was stolen in 82 or 83, something like that. And he could never recover it.
0: Mm. What a shame those two uh, yes. valiant, valiant machines that carried you so far through such extremes of climate and terrain uh, have both suffered that, you know, sad fate.
1: Yeah, no, climate-wise, uh, it didn't affect motorcycle that much. We just had to tinker with our carburetor a little bit. Mm. Uh, we didn't mess with the timing. Uh So uh, when we were up on the mountains, you know, the highest mountain we crossed was like 14,000 some odd feet in Ethiopia. Uh, They have a town there, you know, uh, so people live there. Uh, Even though, you know, spending the night there was a little uncomfortable, but uh, uh, we could, could, you know, make small adjustments on the motorcycle and it worked fine. Yeah. Uh, the greatest thing, you know, great uh, tribute to the motorcycle is that with two people on, it could go through the mud where the, so much torque was required, you know, to overcome that sticky, muddy thing. And uh, sure, we shared the spokes many times, you know, but... And uh, then got us through that, you know. And the... Second motorcycle, which was my motorcycle, uh, never had any trouble, engine trouble, in this 108,000 kilometers. Uh, Or in the sand, you know, uh, the same same thing was in sand. You go at lower gear and lots of torque required, you know, to go through the sand. And uh, it's not that sand was continuously for hundreds of miles. This soft sand, you know, for maybe next three miles, and then again, it was a little bit hard top. like, the surface was a little harder, so our wheels were not sinking into the sand. Uh, so, but this Roland field, you know, I guess uh, whoever designed it, you know, in England originally, uh, they designed it for different purpose, you know. Uh, again, it's my guess, you know, they designed it for, to go through the Second World War. And uh, yeah. with that thing in mind, and... Uh, Uh, that motorcycle was capable of doing almost anything, you know. Hmm. uh, When people talk to me, you know, they say, "Oh, these modern motorcycles, or even, you know, 20 years ago, when they they should talk about motorcycle, they say, so what motorcycle you would recommend for a trip, long trip like that? I said, hey, if a single cylinder Royal Enfield bullet can do it, any motorcycle can do it. Just you have to decide uh, the willingness is in your head, if you are ready to do it or not. Motorcycles, any motorcycle will do it. Yes, yeah. and people don't I realize With
0: that the job. with the bullet, you get some uh, character and charm that goes with it, as well as all that uh, ruggedness and reliability and yeah, the ability to uh, cope with you know, challenging.
1: Uh, Gone. It was so easy to fix the, the little mm. problems, you know, day to day problems. Uh, you could fix so easily, like. Uh, we became so good at it, you know, when we changed the inner tube, it used to take us only 20 minutes to do that. You know? Now if, uh, on your uh, newer motorcycles, you know, uh, interceptors, my son has six fifteen interceptor, uh, And he wanted to uh, put a new tire on it because uh, he, at the end of this week, he's going to take a trip, you know, for a few days. Uh, and uh, I said, Well, you take it to Mechanic Shot, you know, I, I don't know much about the, uh, this motorcycle. Uh, whereas, you know, he bought a uh, Meteor uh, 350 for me. And I, I see so much resemblance of bullet in that, you know. Mm. And uh, I, I don't ride much, but uh, I love to, you know, sit on it, go around the neighborhood. And uh, I, I would love to tinker with it, you know. Maybe just open up. There's no carburetor on it, but just you know, see how things are. Because I, I love to kind of work on motorcycles. You know. I have yes. a Honda uh, Silver Wing, at eighty eighty two, and the, for the heck of it, many times, you know, I just open it, dual carburetors and just enjoy working on it.
0: Sure, sure. So it, that's really interesting that you would still recommend a bullet for people to uh, make an. Uh, a, as Gordon, somebody who uh, myself uh, has made an overland journey on a bullet, and and you know have dreams of making more journeys on bullets, it's really heartening
1: that yeah, you know from the you. era
0: you've come from that you'd still you still recommend it.
1: Uh, uh, I'm amazed that your journey, you know, on that uh, rolling field going to India. Mm. And uh, uh rolling field, you know, uh, to me, it's a very ideal machine because it doesn't weigh enormous uh, weight, you know. Uh, you can handle it a lot easier. Uh, it may not uh, do, you know, 90 or 100 miles an hour. But when you're traveling, you know, long distances, who cares, you know, for the speed? It's the endurance. That's what I look at, you know. Yes. Many roads, you cannot go more than 40 miles an hour anyway. Uh, mm. If you want to see the world, otherwise if you want to stay on uh, motorways and uh, autobounds and freeways, uh, and uh, every night, you know, you check into a hotel, and uh, 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 then you're fine, you know, you can take any kind of motorcycle, big motorcycle, small motorcycle, you'll be fine. But uh, Gordon, one question I, I'll ask you, seen on these motorcycle journeys you know uh, on the internet many people do these journeys you know. lots of people they have quite a bit of stuff on the tank on the motorcycle tank uh, mm-hmm. and even on the handlebars you know uh, i personally not, i'm not in favor of that uh, why people do that
0: I think it's to keep the weight balanced throughout the motorcycle, so not all of the weight is on the back, which lightens the front end. It's to get some weight forward so that the weight is evenly distributed on
1: the motorcycle. Yeah, but Gordon, if you fall off the motorcycle for some reason, uh, there is so much resistance there, you know, and you won't be able to Mm. throw away from the motorcycle. Rather, you will be going with the motorcycle, you know. So we never put a single ounce of anything on the tank, on the handlebars. Uh, Most of our, uh, what I will recommend is uh, uh, take take the minimum stuff with you so that you don't have to uh, jack up the center of gravity so high, you know. Hmm. I saw your motorcycle when you left, you know, at the back, you, you had very little stuff you know it was not like three feet high behind you or something you know
0: yeah it wasn't on the ride through india but i must admit on the ride from cape town to south africa uh, sorry from nordcap to cape town um, I took too much luggage, and this is one of the traps that um, most overlanders fall into, and I should know better. Um, I carried too much, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the lighter you can make the bike, the easier it is to live with and the more fun you can have. It's it's a lot less stressful, and the bike's easier to manage and manoeuvre, especially when you get into busy cities. Uh, or if you fall in sand and you've got to pick it up, you know, you don't have to take all your luggage off first because the bike's too heavy. Uh, I, I'm with you on that, but it is, uh, it's is—it's a real discipline to leave all that stuff behind. <laughs> and half of it you would never use anyway. Um, it, it's a trap that we all fall into, absolutely. How
1: true? Uh, you know, uh... Nowadays, probably there are companies, you know, those who uh, teach you or uh, uh, coach you through what you should take with you and what kind of motorcycle you need for what kind of journey and all that. Uh, but, you know, uh, still to my mind, uh, up to, still today, I can say that you need very little stuff with you. And mm-hmm. uh, we had more stuff... Uh, uh, parts you know and their uh, tools because we were going to the area where the, or anywhere in world, you know at that time roll field was parts were not available but nowadays you know most of the motorcycles which people use uh, every third city has you know a dealership for that and uh, if you stay in europe or even even if you go through you know uh the u.s uh, so uh, you don't have to carry so many parts and so many tools, you know, with you. Uh, and if you if you can do that, you know, just your clothing and stuff, how much it can be. You know. But yeah, yeah. you took that trip, you know, from north of Norway down to South Africa. So did you uh, took eastern route or the western route?
0: So I went down the east of Africa. Uh, so like you, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda. Then I. Continued down through uh, Tanzania and Malawi, Zambia, Botswana to South Africa. Um, I carried an awful lot of spare parts with me because mine was a 1950. 1950- to Royal Enfield. So I, I I felt I needed lots of parts. Uh, but, of course, I never had the parts with me that I actually needed. So why <laughs> on earth was I carrying them? Um, and I think what I learned from that was the efficiency of career services these days. And so, for example, I really damaged my clutch getting into Jerusalem and then negotiating crazy traffic in Khartoum. Um it only took a couple of days for d h l to bring new clutch parts out to me, so uh that taught me a valuable lesson about the many kilos of spare parts I was carrying yeah and and the need to do that in the future but I guess it, it's it's one thing to go on the internet or read books or listen to people like you and I having this conversation and uh hear you know, these words of wisdom. But it's another thing to actually leave everything at home and, and travel light. It, it, it's, as we said, it, it takes a certain discipline to actually do that, I think.
1: Yeah, like Gordon, I can tell you that just being born in India and uh, living there and uh, coming from a, you know, uh, not so well off family, Uh, We were used to living with very little anyway. Yes. Uh, So uh, that's why we didn't find this uh, motorcycle trip that anything was hardship. Uh, That's how we lived anyway, you know. Uh, Some people had fans in their house. There were no air conditions. And the town we lived in, temperature used to go up to 112 degrees and all that, you know. And uh, most of life uh, after high school we spend on with a bicycle. Uh, so uh, but, you know, people, those who live in comfortable countries all over Europe and, you know, sure, England, uh, you have a very comfortable life every day. Uh, so if you have to put yourself into this situation, you have done that. And many people, those who aspire to do it, uh, they consider it hardship. You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, There is this normal living for lots of people in the world that way.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, very aware when traveling that um, it might appear as hardship for us, but there are how many billions who live uh, day to day for their lives in, in those conditions are much worse. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Subash, it's, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. It's, uh, it, it's been absolutely delightful hearing about your, uh, inspiring journey. Um, and you know, I really take my hat off to you for these, uh, guiding these two wonderful old bullets, uh, around the world. Um, and I really appreciate you sharing your, you know, the, your experiences and the, things, the lessons that you've learned from your journey because they're valuable for people to hear those. So really appreciate you sharing those with us today. Um, yeah. it's, been, know, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Gordon, uh, for uh, conducting this interview and uh, it was a pleasure talking to you.
0: And fantastic to hear that you're still riding a Royal Enfield today. Good on you.
1: (laughs) And my son rides it. I I don't think I ever uh, tried to influence him to buy a Royal Enfield. He used to have a Moto Guzzi, then he had a Triumph. So finally he settled on Royal Enfield, you know. And uh, he's thrilled by the performance of these machines.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's been it's been wonderful talking with you. So thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you, Gordon.
0: Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, that's just about all for this episode, except of course for Gordon's history nugget: the post-war 350 Bullet, first seen as a trials bike, went on sale to the wider motorcycle. A post-war 350 bullet, first seen as a trials bike, went on sale to the wider motorcycling public as a very versatile roadster at the end of 1948. Much rarer than these two variants was a Pucker 350 Scrambles bullet, which was available by special order from 1949 until the mid-1950s. Equipped with a Lucas Racing Magneto, it had an 11 to 1 high compression piston for use with racing fuels, a close-ratio gearbox, and three freight freight, 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 I can't believe I didn't get that last bit right. Ah, done. The post-war 350 bullet, first seen on a trials bike, went on sale to the wider motorcycling... Sorry, Ian. The post-war 350 bullet, first seen as a trials bike, went on sale to the wider motorcycling public as a very versatile roadster at the end of 1948. Much rarer than these two variants was a Pucker 350 Scrambles bullet, which was available by special order from 1949 until the mid-1950s. Equipped with a Lucas Racing Magneto, it had an 11-to-1 high-compression piston, for use with racing fuels, a close-ratio gearbox, and straight-through exhaust. The Scrambles bullet was considerably lighter than the standard bullet, with alloy mudguards and an aluminium alloy cylinder barrel. It also had no headlight, no toolboxes, or a speedometer. Running on a 3 by 21 inch front and 4 by 19 inch rear wheels, it was finished in lustrous silver-grey enamel while its handsome petrol tank was chrome-plated with frosted silver panels. At launch it cost £171, exactly the same price as the Roadster. Along with trials, scrambling was a hugely popular sport in the 1950s, with competitions up and down the UK most weekends. Many of these were for amateur riders, who without doubt would have enjoyed both the comfort and the adhesion that the bullets' new swinging on suspension gave them on the rough surfaces they were racing over. Today, genuine Redditch scrambles bullets of this era are as rare as hen's teeth. Do let us know if you have one, or if you've even seen one. Well, that really is all for now. Thank you very much for joining us. To ensure you don't miss any future Ride Pure podcasts, including many more that celebrate the Bullet's 90th anniversary, do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have ideas and suggestions for future episodes, get in touch by email, ridepurepodcast at royalenfield.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to like, add us to your favourites, or even leave a review. Until next time... We wish you great roads and safe riding.